Welcome back to Clinician's Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser, and this week we are out at New York Vet having a wonderful time learning so much from a lot of amazing speakers. And we have the opportunity right now to sit down and have a conversation with Dr. Bryden Stanley. Dr. Bryden, thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you very much, Becky. It's lovely to be here. I am excited. The conversation we're having today is outlined around the talk that you're giving more than one problem, wound management in complicated patients. Right. And I find wound management to be a sexy topic. I am excited to talk <laughs> about this because I think wound management is really cool. I think all of us have like a picture on our phone that we're ready to pull out pretty much at any time and say like, look at this one that I got. But before we dive into all of that, tell me just a little bit about your background, where you come from and, and where all you right. are now. Well I, sh- well, I should say, first of all, that I think I've got more pictures on my, f- I know I have more pictures on my phone of wounds than I do of my children. <laughs> uh, so I am Australian originally and did my original degree in Australia and then went to Canada to do my surgery residency and then spent some time at Edinburgh University and then down in Cambridge. But for the last 22 years, I have been at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. That's wonderful. You have, like I said, literally done veterinary medicine all over the world. (laughs) So you have a lot to contribute, obviously, here at New York Vet. And, And today, again, we're talking about wound management. I think that we find wound management to be so rewarding. It can just be really rewarding. Why is it, what is it that makes it so rewarding when it can be so challenging? Well, it is rewarding. It can also be very frustrating and it's a bit like a roller coaster ride, I think, with these big wounds in complicated patients because you have your two steps forward and one step back. I mean, it is rewarding because you see the end result and you're obviously contributing to the patient's health. But I think when you have a challenging wound and a challenging case or a complicated case, you need to sit down right at the very beginning with the owner and say, this is going to be a journey. This, it's not just like a normal little cut or a graze or a degloving. This is going to be a journey. I typically say whatever season is, is, it is. This is going to be the summer of Rosie or this is going to be the spring of Peanut because it's going to take several months and maybe multiple reconstructive efforts. And we have to be patient during that time to get it right. If you try to reconstruct too early in these complicated patients with big wounds, you're going to end up with failure. I love that client expectation set up from the get-go. It's essential, right? Exactly. And to ensure that they're not only financially invested in their pet, but they're also emotionally invested in their pet because typically they end up doing a lot of the wound care at home. Even the queasy ones they really get into it. And then when they come in for their weekly or bi-weekly recheck, they say, look, look what we've done. I'm saying, well, the dog is healing. (laughs) (laughs) But it is very important to get the owners absolutely involved and to realize what a major impact this is going to have on their lives. Yeah. The communication portion, it's just incredibly detrimental or supportive of the long-term outcome, I think, you know, and, and also just having to deal emotionally as veterinary professionals. I know when we set things up from the beginning, then we do a lot less damage control on the back end. It feels like when we're kind of trying to explain, well, no, we knew this would be a long process. Well, you didn't tell me it would be a long process. So I love giving our veterinarians and and support staff members out there listening, that is a starting point, set up the expectations. Outside of that, you discuss kind of three phases to start. And I I just kind of wanted to talk about those three phases and and the flagship markers of each, because we know that they can be extended time periods. So what are the things we see that mark each phase? So what we're talking about is wound healing and the three major phases of wound healing. And it's really interesting that in mammals, they heal basically in the same way and all their organs heal 
through these three phases. Sometimes they can take different times and they're slightly different in the types of cells that come into the arena when they're healing. But basically, wound healing and organ healing is a very similar process. Uh, certainly, when you look at a wound, an open wound, and that's healing, and we'll talk about those phases in a minute, and an incised wound that you've sutured closed, they heal in exactly the same way. It's just that the open wound and the incised wound is very, very small compared to the open wound when you have a patient that you're allowing to heal by second intention. So the three phases are certainly not distinct phases. There is a huge amount of overlap of the phases, both temporally, in other words, in time, but also there can be many phases going on at the same time in the same wound. So the only reason we divide them up into these phases is it's easier to understand and to comprehend and to sort of understand what's happening in, in the complex sort of orchestration of signaling that goes on with wound healing. So the three phases that we divide them into, first of all, the inflammatory phase, and this used to be called years ago the lag phase because it looks like nothing is happening. And I really hate that term because a huge amount is happening. All the cellular players are coming into the arena. So the macrophages, which are coming from the blood as monocytes, you've got the neutrophils, you've got the undifferentiated mesenchymal cells coming into the arena and becoming fibroblasts. And you've got platelets, hugely important for wound healing. And although it looks like nothing is happening, a lot is happening. First of all, you have hemostasis, which is the, the critical to the early part of wound healing. Then you have this early inflammation period where you have uh, all the cells coming into the arena, as I mentioned, and everything getting set up for the next phase. And then in the late inflammatory phase, they're starting to settle down and do their job of producing all the wound factors and growth factors and cytokines and collagen and hyaluronic acid, all the other products that they're producing form both the extracellular matrix and the cellular part of the next phase of wound healing, development of granulation tissue. And we call this the proliferative phase. And this is when you do see something happening. A lot is happening. You've got this beautiful bright red granulation tissue, which is composed of lots of blood cells. So you've got angiogenesis occurring and lots of little capillary buds coming into the wound and sprouting off the existing vasculature. You've got fibroblasts laying down collagen to make a nice resistant spongy granulation tissue bed. And this is when you actually start to see the epithelialization occurring from the wound edges. And these are the hallmarks of the proliferative phase. And the proliferative phase is kind of where we want to get to in our initial wound management because initially in the inflammatory phase you have a huge amount of exudate, this comes down in the proliferative phase and when you've got granulation tissue it's really healthy, it's, it's very resistant to infection, you can kind of take a bit of a breather at that stage and say, okay, I think this dog's going to be fine. We've got granulation tissue. Now we can either think about letting it heal, you know, continuing to let it heal by second intention, or we can reconstruct this wound. But it is important when you have major wounds to get to that stage rather than reconstructing too early. And then the final phase of wound healing is the maturation phase. And this is once the wound is completely epithelialized and the granulation tissue underneath starts to reorganize along the lines of tension. So you get collagen bundles that strengthen and cross-link with each other. And the ones that aren't aligned along the lines of tension get resorbed. And the ones that are aligned along the 
lines of tension strength and become stronger to provide strength to the, the cicatrix or the scar. And likewise, the epithelium that is initially crawled over as a very thin sort of monolayer or a few layers places down a basement membrane, which is also collagen, and then starts to build up the four layers of the keratinized layer or the epidermis as it is. So eventually you end up, and this can take months and months, by far the longest phase of wound healing, and eventually you will end up with a, a cicatrix or a scar that is about 80% as as strong as the original skin, but far less pliable or elastic. I, I've, I've never heard wound healing sound so beautiful, but you, I mean, you're I, like, I painted this beautiful picture. You're absolutely right. What is happening is actually quite beautiful. It is. It's an orchestra. <laughs> I mean, I could almost set it to music in my head. And I think it's really nice when we think about it that way, because it sounds sort of forgiving, right? We give permission for each phase to be what it is. We enable. Yes. We enable it. Yeah. yeah. I've often actually thought of doing a play, a musical of wound healing, you know, and everybody would be dressed up as all these little blood cells. And it would be sold out in my book. I would be there I opening know. night. I, 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 think I possibly I'll, would audition for this. Book. I'll work on that. <laughs> Want to write? You could this be a macrophage. <laughs> that would be the, my my seller choice. I love it so much. But it, but it is a beautiful thing, it, and it's an important thing I think for us to see it as that, and to know each stage has to have its own scene. Well, it does, but also. One of the main reasons I want people to understand wound healing is it's important to recognize when a wound isn't healing yes. appropriately. Like if it has a prolonged inflammatory phase and why it might have a prolonged inflammatory phase or if the wound just seems to stop healing in the proliferative phase and go into a stasis and to therefore try and, you know, if they can recognize when a wound isn't healing well, then they can investigate why and try to kickstart it back into healing again. You talk a little bit about reconstruction. How much of that can be done in general practice? How much that has to happen to specialty? When do we know to go there? Like, what are kind of those benchmarks? So that's a really good question. I do quite a lot of continuing education, and there are a lot of very competent practitioners out there that are very competent in surgery and very much able to do a lot of tension-relieving techniques, which is a reconstructive, a whole reconstructive repertoire that you could gain. And also some basic flap, the skin fold flaps that Geraldine Hunt described, advancement flaps, rotation flaps, and even axial pattern flaps, which are very big flaps. But it takes a deep breath to do some of these flaps. And I think the best way to, if you're not sort of confident in doing these reconstructive techniques, then go to courses, but also go to courses where they have wet labs because a wet lab associated with a lecture and somebody there telling you, yes, this is what you can do. Oh, no, just watch that little bit there. That really consolidates your competence, but also your confidence yes. for doing your first animal. So I really encourage anybody that's really in, I mean, because it is really rewarding, but there are complications inherent with reconstructive techniques, obviously. Oh, absolutely. And the more knowledge, the better. Now, you talk about the four main tenets of open wound management and the ubiquitous nature of skin across species, which is also, I think, fairly interesting. And these principles hold true for most of our patients. What are the comorbidity complications we're considering in terms of these four tenets? So the four tenets of wound healing, which have been well described and proven many times in many wars since Napoleonic times and before, are basically adapted to animals, is to clip the peri-wound, cleanse the peri-wound skin, not the wound yet, then cleanse the wound, 
and then they breed the wound. In other words, remove all necrotic material and foreign debris from the wound and then lavage the wound, or as they call it in the military, wash out, wound wash out, liberally for about 10 minutes with a moderate pressure and repeat that. Peri-wound cleansing, wound cleansing, if you need to repeat the debridement, do it, and then repeat that wound wash out or lavage every time you do a bandage change before you get granulation tissue in the wound, so in the inflammatory phase. And it will really improve your wound management. So it's clipping cleansing, they breed more, lavage, and then the, the final tenet is putting a dressing on it or dress. And this is where I will concentrate in the talk is we have basically a plethora of dressings out there that are touted by the industry, you know, the wound care industry for humans because it's such a huge problem in humans. And so we there's a distinct set of dressings for the inflammatory phase and another distinct set of dressings for the proliferative phase. So to go back to your original question, which was what comorbidity and what factors will affect wound healing? Well, there's quite a lot. I find that a lot of the wounds that come into me, I like to divide these into management factors into patient factors and then into wound factors. And I must say that most of these are management factors. And the three most common things you need to think about is, is tension playing a role in this wound to prevent it from healing? Is pressure playing a role? Or is motion playing a role? But there are other things like, is the wound macerated? Is it too wet? Or is it desiccated? Is it too dry? It was a bandage putting in inverted conditions on it. So it, these are all things to think about how this wound has been managed. Patient factors are things like extreme old age. Cats heal a little differently because they have much thinner skin and they need their subcutaneous tissues much more than dogs. Greyhound skin is just like geriatric skin, no matter what the age <laughs> of the greyhound yes. and the whippet and the Italian greyhound, but that's, that's all. The severe malnutrition will play a role. And then some underlying endocrinopathies like Cushing's disease, but not so much diabetes or hypothyroidism like we see with humans can negatively and adversely impact wound healing. And then the actual wound factors are the ones that can be really challenging. They're not that frequent, but you need to be prepared for them. And these were things like atypical infection, like a mycobacterial or an acnomycotic infection, or neoplasia in the wound. Like if it has been a neoplastic resection and it's broken down, always want to re-biopsy that, right? Is there a foreign body in there? Is there a foreign body that you haven't previously inquired about or thought about that may be preventing this wound from healing? So that's how I just arbitrarily divide up sort of the factors that adversely affect wound healing and the comorbidities that can. Some of the comorbidities that you can that you can see are just caused by the wound itself. So if you have significant wounding in an animal that comes in then you need to be prepared for the fact that this animal will become low in protein. It may be anemic either from blood loss or from anemia of chronic inflammation. It will become lymphedemic because of the low protein. It won't be eating probably very well, either because of the pain or because of the pain meds that it's on. So it'll be inappetent. So it's really important to address these things. It may even be cardiovascularly unstable. So we've got to address these early on. So we'll instrument these animals, these animals with significant wounding up really early. We will make sure we've got cardiovascular stability, usually a triple lumen catheter in in case we need to give products or parental nutrition. We'll always put in a feeding tube. We put a nasogastric tube and we start trickle feeding them immediately. We'll give them oxygen. We'll put a UCAT in. We'll probably put a central line in to measure CVP as well. And we gradually de-instrument them as, as they get better and better. But you need to 
expect that these animals will become lymphedenic. They may regurg. You might want to have to put them on stomach protectants, especially brachycephalics or geriatric animals, prone to regurg, prone to aspiration. So these are comorbidities that have been sort of acquired because of the severity of the wounding. Yeah. And so it's always worth to be aware of that and just say, okay, let's instrument this animal up because they won't be apparent immediately. Absolutely. And then yeah. you're in front of it, which is the best thing we can do, right? We can proactively it, prevent it instead exactly. of like trying to exactly. explain to an owner now we have caused it's this like, additionally. It's like putting a fence at the top of the cliff instead of an ambulance at the yes. bottom. Oh, I love that. The way that you say that. Now, what about when we have these multifaceted injuries? Because obviously in, a, in the best case scenario, a patient comes in and there is just a wound and it may be a terrible wound, but that's all you have to deal with, but it seems in some cases either the wound is a huge percentage of their body or there's other traumas involved. So perhaps there's been, you know, a hit by car where there's a degloving, but also a break or a, a brain injury. What about when we're dealing with multifaceted trauma? So when a wound comes in, an acute traumatic wound comes in, unless it is actively hemorrhaging, it is not the priority. The priority is going to be ascertaining neurologic status, ascertaining cardiovascular stability, in other words, the stability of the, the thorax, um, heart, lungs, thoracic wall, abdominal contents. You know, for example, a lot of these animals, if they've been hit by cars, that's quite a concussive force and that it can cause sheer injuries to the organs inside the abdomen and thorax for that matter. So, you know, watch out for VPCs. And so you have to ascertain the integrity of the hollow viscera, like the intestines and the bladder, as well as if there's any intra-abdominal hemorrhage. Also, especially with bite wounds, you want to assess the integrity of the cavity walls. And this can be difficult sometimes. I mean, we can do radiographs and look for air, but we can miss things. And if you're in any doubt, I often will put a, well, not often, but if I'm if we're in any doubt as to whether any bite wounds have penetrated an abdomen, we will, I'll just put a scope in there, a laparoscope, and have a look around on the inside wall. The, the consequence is if you miss, say, penetrated bowel or a vulsed bladder, a disastrous or a vulsed ureter or something. So you really have to ascertain the integrity of these structures before you address the wound. You know, you can ask things like, has he walked? You know, has he urinated? Is he conscious? <laughs> and those sort of things. But it is up to us. That's our job is to get the animals stable before we address the wound, unless the wound's actively hemorrhaging. If they have like orthopedic injuries, then that varies. Sometimes we will address the wound itself and not the orthopedic injury, especially when a joint is involved and then reconstruct the joint when the wound is in a better state. Other times, for example, if it's a fracture or like a pelvic fracture or, or a long bone fracture, orthopedics will go in and repair the fracture first and then we deal with the wound afterwards. And what has really helped us with those sort of injuries, the latter, well, all of them really, is the use of negative pressure wound therapy because it has really decreased the length of time of the inflammatory phase. So we can get to the proliferative phase within that first week easily when we have the vac on or negative pressure wound therapy compared to in a really major wound, sometimes two weeks waiting till we get to the proliferative phase, till we get good better granulation tissue. There are little tools in that help us get there nowadays. I mean, we love our toys, right? And, and it gives us the reasons <laughs> to have them and buy them. This podcast is brought to you by the First Financial Bank Veterinary Lending Division. When you need financial assistance with an acquisition, expansion, remodeling, or startup, call the division built by a DVM and former business owners. They know the business and they can help you reach your financial goals. Learn more at ffb one 
com. Member FDIC Equal Housing Lender. So tell me a little bit, what are our do's and don'ts with antibiotic therapy when we're talking about these major wounds? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there is a tendency to put, and this is a tendency in in our hospital as well, which drives me crazy, is to put these guys on broad spectrum antibiotics. Now, I understand that when they come to us, they can go on a short term of broad spectrum antibiotics. However, If you look at the military now, because I read a lot of military medicine journal, because the wounds in the young, healthy military are very similar to the wounds that we get in dogs and cats. If they can get the injured soldier to the combat support hospital, which is a level three facility, I think, within 90 minutes, and usually they can do that because of the helicopters can back them out. If they can get them to the combat support hospital within 90 minutes, they do not place that personnel on antibiotic. So they do the tenets of wound management, do the wound washout, the lavage, the, you know, the, the cleansing, the debridement, and then they typically will put negative pressure wound therapy on them, medivac them out to a level five facility either in Germany or the US, and they will culture then that wound upon entry into that facility and then use an appropriate antibiotic. So what we tend to do is overuse and abuse broad spectrum antibiotics, and then we will end up with a multi-drug resistant bacteria, which is really difficult to manage because you've got a good complete barrier nursing. And I'll be talking about that in the lecture as well. But we very rarely will get our patients within 90 minutes of wounding either. So the compromise that I would like and try to promote at work is that we usually start them on an intravenous broad spectrum but we don't keep them on, and if they can have oral intake, then we'll we'll transfer that to oral intake, but we don't have them on for longer than five to seven days on that broad spectrum. Sometimes I miss that because if I'm just consulting on the wound and the resident's managing it, then they, you know, you'll see an animal gets on there for three or four weeks and then suddenly it's got this weird infection and I'm thinking, oh no. So really a short-term broad spectrum antibiotic I think is appropriate for our patient clientele, but really not long-term culture. And I don't culture for acute traumatic wounds either. I'll, you know, if I need, if there are signs of infection, I will culture them later. And so then what about pain management, right? Because when we've got long-term wound healing, I harp constantly on the mental impacts of pain, obviously, in that extended period of time. And these mm. bandage changes and wound management, mm. it, it can be painful. So how do you manage pain with these guys? So we're pretty lucky now because we have a nice little you know, set of cocktails that we can use for for these drugs. And sometimes we can reverse things as well. When a patient first comes in, and it's important to remember this, it may have more somatic pain than it has visceral pain, or it might have both. So I always or typically like to add a little bit of something that will help with the somatic pain like ketamine. We use a lot of constant rate infusions, and I love these because I can dial them up and dial them down, see how they go. So something like a fentanyl lidocaine ketamine or morphine lidocaine ketamine CRI, I think is, is really good for our wounded patients, and then transition to an oral combination. But we'll often keep them on, if they're critical and complicated, we'll keep them on these CRIs for long term. When it comes to painful bandage changes or painful procedures, if we're pre-tensioning a wound or something like that, we'll tend to use a combination of something. We really don't want to sedate these patients sort of all the time. So we'll use something like, you know, a little bit of something like dexmedetomidine and uh, butorphanol, and then we'll reverse the dexmed when we're finished. And that seems to work pretty well as well. 
But we're pretty lucky nowadays because we've also got a lot of other choices we can use and when we transition to oral as well. But I'll, I'll usually use a combo of drugs, a little maybe an opioid and an NSAID depending on the status of the dog. And then what about your complementary therapies? What other things do you, where other areas do you like to bring in? Is acupuncture helpful for these guys or, you know, massage? And how do you kind of help in these in these cases? Do you have go-to complementary therapies you like? Well, yes. I mean, our main one, of course, is negative pressure wound therapy is the fact that is the main thing that has really changed our lives, I think. We have done some study on other things like uh, laser therapy for acute wounds, and we haven't found a difference. We've published that, and we haven't found a difference in acute wound healing, uh, well, for the first 32 days anyhow, using laser, low-level laser therapy or not. I do think physical therapy is really important for everything, but it's very important for post-operative flap management, if you've got an edematous flap, getting this animal out and walking as much as possible will help lymphatic drainage. Warm massage of flaps is really important. We never ice a flap. Always put warm uh, compresses and massage. We do sometimes use topical antimicrobials or antiseptics, something like a low-dose silver topical medication or manuka honey because of their profound antibacterial effect. You really don't want to use a lot of silver on the wound because it does impede wound healing, but these low-dose release uh, compounds are quite good. I do think the future is really going to be in these regenerative products. I think stem cells, platelet-rich plasma, fibrin matrix type, type preparations made from the animal's own cells. I use equine amnion as a pilot study and we think that's pretty good but we haven't done a comparative study yet. And then of course tilapia and other fish skin seems to be having pretty good results. We've used that on a limited basis but it is looking quite good. I think we've all we're hearing about that mm. and it's kind of exciting right? You know that these bears that have been caught in wildfires mm. and they're able mm. to... Yeah, no these are all anecdotal cases um, and sort of case reports but I do think there may be something in and it would be lovely to do a controlled uh, prospective randomized study on it. So that statement there, I'm going to transition into my keep it brief segment. And it's just a portion of the episode. There really is no pressure at all for you to actually keep it brief. But that was something I wanted to ask you about for sure, because we talk about honey, insulin, fish skin, and crazy things like maybe leeches. So like you're saying, this is anecdotal. What do you see being used out there that you do not want put on these wounds? And what are some things you think are worth investigating? Well, it's difficult because everybody's got their favorite wound product that they swear by. And yet there's a paucity of really good data in veterinary medicine to back it up. Leeches have been well described and they are useful if they're for flaps that are compromised, that have got venous compromise. So they've still got an arterial supply but have lack of venous drainage for whatever reason. You know, with us, we don't keep leeches on hand, so we have to order them overnight. And so it's usually the next morning they come in, and often by then it's too late. But they are very useful for flaps that have got venous compromise. And there are many products out there. And as I said, I think the regenerative medicine products have got a great future in it. But we do have to have good data. We can't go off case reports, and we can't go off case series. I mean, these are not bad things to publish. They're, it's good information. But if we really want to definitively say that one product is better than a standard of care, then we need to do either an experimental study or a randomized controlled clinical trial. And the gold standard for evidence is 
a randomized controlled clinical trial. And they're easy to do. We see lots of wounds. And I, you know, sometimes I think the future of good clinical trials is going to be out in the specialty practices where everybody's seeing hundreds of cases that are coming through the door and uh, they just need to have somebody to coordinate them and enter them into the appropriate study. So is there anything you say, please stop doing this, please stop putting this on wounds? What's out there that we've got to stop? I think most of the issues that I don't like is when, and it's not so much a product. So I think rather than something that you put on a wound, what I really don't like is, first of all, when an animal comes on and it comes in and it's been weeks on a broad spectrum antibiotic and it's got a resistant infection. So that's really a challenge. And then when the wound has been closed too early, and this is huge because you have to be very patient and wait for not only the wound to be ready, but the peri-wound skin has to be ready for that flap or that tension relieving technique or even this that direct closure. And so I see so many times that these wounds have been closed early and uh, sometimes drains are put in inappropriately. And that's when I sit down and have the talk with the owner and say, we can heal this, but we're just going to be patient. It's going to take a week before we can reconstruct this wound. We're going to treat it open until then. And that happens all the time. I think as far as putting things on the wound, I think inappropriate dressings or inappropriate bandaging can really slow down wound healing. So if you put a dressing on or a bandage on that's too occlusive in the inflammatory phase where it's you know exuding a lot of fluid into the bandage, then your wound is going to become macerated. And when it becomes macerated, it just slows down everything and it's really prone to getting infected as well. So your bandages or the dressings in that inflammatory phase have to be completely breathable so that as the exudate comes out of the wound, it goes in and is wicked up into the secondary layer of the bandage. So tertiary layers of bandage like vet wrap and elasticon are fine because they're completely breathable. They're a little water resistant, you know, when they go outside and everything, but they breathe really well. But as soon as you put something on there like a plastic bag or a diaper, you know, one of those pee pads to sort of keep the bandage clean, you're going to macerate that open wound and it's going to be a disaster. That's great information. That's great tips. And you've given so much knowledge for us to better handle these wounds, which we get a lot of, you know, and we want to do a great job. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk this over with us and for taking the time here at the conference to cover this important topic. You're very welcome, Becky. Thank you very much. Thanks again to today's guest for joining us, and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate it if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief, on Twitter at cliniciansbrief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinician's Brief, the podcast, is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant Michelle Moncrez.